Let's turn once again to Daniel chapter 4 and read the second half of the chapter. Beginning at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heaven, reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. And therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, and there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever." For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So far, the reading of God's word. May God bless the reading of his word this afternoon and the proclamation 
of that word to his glory. Following the sermon in response to it, we'll sing again from Psalm 147, the stanzas 4, 5, and 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Daniel chapter 2, we learned that the king of Babylon, the man who sat on Babylon's throne, was a dreamer. The all-powerful ruler of the world's greatest empire was shown to be powerless when he was asleep. But Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, he had a serious problem. When he stopped dreaming and started living, he forgot about his real lack of power. And he began to imagine that he was the one sitting on God's throne instead of on a human throne that God had placed him on for his own good purposes. Now, after Daniel revealed the dream that had been bothering the king so much and the interpretation of that dream, Nebuchadnezzar at that time, he experienced an all-too-brief awakening. But as we saw in chapter 3, that, that awakening was not a rebirth. And in the end, it only led to a strengthened resolve on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf to rebel against the one who had revealed himself in that dream. And now in chapter 4, we encounter Nebuchadnezzar the dreamer once again. But this time, it's a first-person account and this dream and its fulfillment led to, indeed, a great awakening. But in order for that great awakening to happen, this powerful ruler had to be brought to his knees. He had to be humbled completely. Every delusion of grandeur that Nebuchadnezzar harbored in his heart had to be taken away from him. And so in this episode of the life of the great king, the true king shows his power. And that man who considered himself to be divine, after being reduced to the state of an unthinking brute beast before God, was truly changed in a miraculous display of God's power. And that display of God's power proved true the words of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man, but he was also a fearful man. He was a man whose anxieties came, to, came out, we could say, when he was in his bed at night, trying to sleep. While he appeared to be at ease and prosperous on the surface, at night, when there was nobody around to flatter him, when he couldn't command people to do his bidding, when he was just another guy trying to sleep, the realities of life could not be hidden from him. And this dream bothered him just as much as that last dream had. But at least this time, the dream itself was clear. He could remember it. And so once again, he brought out his big guns, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. But just as in chapter 2, they proved themselves to be unequal to the task that Nebuchadnezzar set before them. Now, it may be that, that they were really unable to interpret the dream, but that's not too likely. Now, perhaps you have heard of two men, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Now, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud were two of the fathers of psychoanalysis in the, in the early 20th century. 
And these two men didn't agree about a lot of things, but, but they, they knew a lot and they wrote a lot about the interpretation of dreams. They believe that dreams have a lot to tell us about our psyche, about the way our minds work, about the issues that we're struggling with. But Freud and Jung in the 20th century, they were simply building on the foundation that had already been laid by these wise men of ancient Babylon. These men were experts. They had all the training. And we know, you may have recognized yourself when you read the dream, as we were reading it together, the symbolism in the dream isn't exactly subtle. At the very least, the wise men of Babylon should have been able to explain the general picture. Because Nebuchadnezzar himself understood that the message for him was, at the very least, not a positive one. And that's what scared him. Now, sir, so what happened was that perhaps the king called together the wise men and told them the dream. They got together in their boardroom or their gathering place to discuss how they would go about dealing with this problem because it was a big one. Now, someone would have to go. One of them would have to go to Nebuchadnezzar and give him the bad news. And we've already seen a few examples of how Nebuchadnezzar responded when things didn't go his way. And surely these men must have seen a lot more throughout their lives. But whether they really didn't understand the dream or whether they were just frightened to tell Nebuchadnezzar what they thought that the dream meant, that failure, their failure, led to Daniel being called in. And Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel, Belteshazzar, as the chief of the magicians. And so it could be that at first he didn't think it was necessary to call Daniel in right away. This was a job that your average enchanter could do. But when all else failed, it was to Daniel that he turned. And Nebuchadnezzar shows by the way that he addresses Daniel that he knew that Daniel had a special relationship with God. We, we read it together in verse 9, and you may have noticed a footnote in our Bibles because in verse 9 he says, Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And it's probably better translated here as the spirit of the holy God. Because that word for God is plural. And that plural can be used for the one true God. Or it can be used for a group of gods or more than one God. So Nebuchadnezzar had some idea of God. Every culture in the world really has an idea of an unapproachable, unknowable deity that exists outside of creation, beyond creation. And even if they, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, choose to worship and serve the created things rather than the Creator. And so he had some notion of God. And, and he had even seen for himself the power of God, even though he had refused to submit to him. And that was surely one of the, if not the most important reason for the anxiety that plagued King Nebuchadnezzar. And so as we read, Nebuchadnezzar explains his dream. There's this great tree growing in the midst of the earth. And that great tree is a common symbol in the ancient world, or was a common symbol in the ancient world. It was the cosmic tree or the world tree standing at the center, at the focal point of this world. 
And this cosmic tree stood for the power that rules the world, where the focus of divine power sits. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, his empire, were understood. So the tree was, we can say, it was like the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And we can also say, we can also compare it to the Tower of Babel because it fulfilled the same purposes that the Tower of Babel was intended to fulfill. Its top reached to the heavens and it was visible. It could be seen throughout the whole earth. And so it was the kingdom of man. And that kingdom of man was a glorious kingdom. It was covered in beautiful leaves. It produced abundant fruit. It provided food for everyone. Animals sought out its shade. The birds found shelter in its branches. And so this tree at the center of the world was a source of life, and it was a blessing to everyone around it. But in the dream, the idyllic picture is shattered with the arrival of a watcher, a holy one, an angel of God. And that angel declares what's going to happen to this great tree. The tree is going to be chopped, chopped, chopped down. Its branches are going to be lopped off. Its leaves are going to be stripped. And its fruit will be scattered. So the animals and the birds are going to flee from it. And only a stump is going to remain. And that stump will be bound with a band of iron and uh, a metal band. And that, that stump... That stump comes to be described in human terms because that stump represents a human being. It represents Nebuchadnezzar himself, as Daniel explains. He would become wet with dew. He would eat grass with the beasts. His sanity would be taken away from him, and he would become like an animal for seven periods of time. And why would this happen? Daniel explains why it would happen. So that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. That's a refrain that we hear repeated three times in this chapter. It's the message of God's absolute sovereignty, the complete control of the God of heaven. Now that kingdom of man was glorious, to be sure. And we know that a human kingdom can be a blessing to the world. A human kingdom can provide the conditions for prosperity, for peace, for justice. Human governments, even empires, are set up or put in their place by God. And they're put there for the benefit of humanity. And that's the message of Romans chapter 13, which we've heard much about, especially recently, where it says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And those are some sections from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Now that is what the state, the kingdom of man, should be. As instituted by God, enforcing God's laws to fulfill God's purposes. That's the God-given nature and responsibility of the kingdom of man. The nature that, very sadly, men have ignored and despised throughout history, just as Nebuchadnezzar did. But God was gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. 
God continued to reveal himself. He continued to issue these wake-up calls to the dreamer. Daniel explains the dream, and along with it, he proclaims a call to repentance. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. We see here that Daniel doesn't offer any guarantees to Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity would continue should he repent, but no guarantee. God is sovereign. He'll do as he pleases. He rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. So Nebuchadnezzar receives the message, but it takes less, only a year, for Nebuchadnezzar to forget once again. This message, without having been fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar's life, seems to have had little effect on him. A year later, he's up on the roof of his royal palace. He's admiring the beauty and the greatness of the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's admiring the great world tree, that cosmic tree, the center of the world. And it appears that Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten completely the message of the dream. He's forgotten that the empire was given to him by God for God's purposes. He's overcome with pride. Look at great Babylon, which I've built. This city was not built by God, it was built by me. It was built by the mighty power of Nebuchadnezzar. The king was ruling not for the glory of God, but for the glory of himself, the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. But God shows his mercy right at the time when the king was in the midst of his blasphemy, because that's what it was, it was blasphemy. He hadn't even finished speaking when God declared from heaven that his dream would now come true. Not the human dream about the glory of the kingdom of men, but that God-sent dream which revealed the truth and the authority of the God of heaven. And he went mad. There's actually a name for the mental illness that Nebuchadnezzar suffered from for these seven periods of time, probably a period of seven months. And it's a rare mental disorder called boanthropy or zoanthropy. It's when a person becomes convinced that he or she is an animal and loses all sense of his or her humanity. People begin to identify as animals. And that's what happened to the king. Now here in Daniel 4, it's very interesting that we see the message of one of the Psalms, Psalm 73, being lived out in history. In Psalm 73, the psalmist speaks about how he had envied the arrogant man. He had envied the prosperity of the wicked. The arrogant man, the wicked man, appeared to be fat and happy, successful, free from all the troubles that that afflict the rest of humanity. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. And these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. But then the psalmist in Psalm 73 is led to understand the reality of the situation, the reality of life. And he's led to understand when he goes to worship. 
Now, these men, apparently without a care in the world, just like Nebuchadnezzar, at ease in his house, prospering in his palace, like Nebuchadnezzar congratulating himself, patting himself on the back about the great city that he had built by his mighty power for the glory of his own majesty, he would not thrive forever. Verses 18 to 20 of Psalm 73, Truly you have set them on slippery, in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And it's interesting to see in verse 22 of the same psalm how the psalmist speaks about his own envy. How he envied the wicked and what that envy of the wicked, the, the, the supposedly successful wicked man, what that envy did to him. Because we see another parallel with our text here in verse 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And so that envy makes the envious man become like Nebuchadnezzar, ironically, something less than human. Now during this period of time, you can imagine the effect that Nebuchadnezzar's sudden fall from glory must have had on his kingdom. The great king, the embodiment, the personification of all the glory of his kingdom, driven from among men, living in the fields like a wild animal, eating grass, sleeping on the ground, completely, absolutely out of his mind, unable to care for himself, let alone run a great empire. It really must have thrown the upper echelons of the kingdom into absolute chaos. It must have been, first and foremost, a blow to their worldview, their understanding of who the king was, the position of Babylon, in cosmic terms, the person of the empire of the emperor. And on a more practical level, it would have led to all kinds of challenges in the day-to-day running of the empire. But after these seven periods of time, just as quickly as the madness has, had descended on Nebuchadnezzar, it was removed from him. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar was led to real repentance. Finally, he was. He makes a confession of faith that shows Daniel's influence because he uses language that's very much influenced by God's word. And no longer here does Nebuchadnezzar speak about God as Daniel's God. Now he calls him the Most High God, the God who lives forever, whose dominion is everlasting, whose kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now, this is really an incredible transformation, a transformation that had a worldwide impact. The world tree, that cosmic tree, had been transformed. That transformation would not not be a lasting one for Babylon itself. But the man who stood at the conceptual center of the universe had been completely and utterly changed. The man who had stood in defiance of God, who had refused to acknowledge God's control, God's authority over history, who did his utmost to fight against it, to rebel. This man had been made new. And of course, as we saw, it took an extreme action on God's part to make this happen, to make this change come about. But what the Lord did to Nebuchadnezzar 
teaches us something very important about God's grace. When we think about God's grace, and when we think about love, God's love, and how to proclaim it, and how to show it, we may think about gentleness and kindness. When we desire to reflect God's grace in our relationships, in our evangelism, we may imagine that we need to avoid offending people, that we need to avoid speaking any kind of harsh words, that we need to be sweet and kind and gentle. And we may find it hard to imagine, or we may not want to imagine, that God, in His grace, could actually drive someone mad. But that's exactly what God did. He took everything away from Nebuchadnezzar so that all of his illusions would be, would be shattered. He destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's idol because it was, he knew that, that there was no other way. It was obvious that there was no other way to bring him to repentance. He took away the king's sanity. He took away his place in the world. He took away his respectability, his position as the head of the world's greatest empire. He took away every comfort. Really, he took away his humanity. And he did that in his grace, in his mercy, to bring about the repentance that he was seeking. Brothers and sisters, God can still do that today, and he still does that today. What he has done in the past should give us confidence about what he will do in the future. And we can think of that on a couple of levels. When we, when we think about the ungodly and wicked rulers that are in control of the world, that appear to be in control of the world today, the rulers, the movers and shakers of this world who desire nothing more than to make themselves the lords of all creation. When we think about that, we may, we may despair. But the, but the message of Daniel 4 is that there is still hope. Now, the answer could be the destruction of these men. It could be the destruction of these institutions, these organizations, these movements. That could be the answer. But the answer could also be very different. And it's an answer that we might not even consider to be realistic when we think about it. We may never have even thought about it. Because it could be their conversion. If God could do it to Nebuchadnezzar, God can certainly do it today. If God could change the mind and the heart of this stubborn, self-important world leader, this idolater, he could certainly do exactly the same thing to the stubborn and deluded men who hold positions of power in the modern world, in the 21st century. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget this. We must never underestimate the power of the Lord and His continued control over the events of world history. And also pray with that in mind. The stone that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt about in Daniel chapter 2, that stone had crushed him. And that's the work that the Lord Jesus Christ continues to do. And Jesus explained it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 to 44. He said, Have you never read in scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in his eyes, in our eyes. He tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God would be taken from them and given to a people producing its fruits. And then he adds this, he says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That means there are two ways to encounter the Lord Jesus. But an encounter with the Lord Jesus, with the grace and mercy and love of the Lord Jesus, is not going to be an easy, gentle, sweet, and mild encounter. Because you can encounter that stone, as I said, in two ways. Either you personally could fall on that stone and you can be broken to pieces in the process, or that stone could fall on you and crush you. Now that's true for the leaders of the world. That's true for the Nebuchadnezzars of the 21st century. And it's also true for us. One way or another, all of us, each one of us is going to encounter the stone. Now for Nebuchadnezzar, that encounter crushed him. But that crushing would ultimately lead to repentance, to a change of mind, to a new heart, to a new life, to a new beginning. When we see the rulers of this age refusing to acknowledge the lordship, the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing to submit, refusing to kiss the son as we sing in Psalm 2, we must pray. We must pray fervently that either they fall on that stone and be broken or that that stone fall on them to crush them. And for us, brothers and sisters, as the Lord Jesus once again calls us to call, uh, to respond to the gospel message, the encounter is no different. We must humble ourselves before Him. We must have our old, rebellious, self-righteous nature broken to pieces. And that, that process may be a very long, very difficult, and very painful process. But when we are broken to pieces in this way, the results, we can only say, are glorious. Because we're made new. We're given new hearts. We begin to grow into being what we were meant to be from the beginning. Not like that beast that Nebuchadnezzar had become, but truly human, renewed in the image of that stone, renewed in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a painful process, and let's never think otherwise. But it's necessary, and the results are glorious, and the results are eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, having fallen on that stone, we can praise him, along with, shockingly, King Nebuchadnezzar. We can use his words. Now I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Amen.